service. Hey, are you guys proud dog owners like I am? You ever wonder why so many dogs are suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, you know Katherine Heigl from Knocked Up, she's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation. And she says that she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, Catherine feels that there's one place that we can all look to improve our dog's health, and that is their food. Many dog foods can actually create toxins that can be wrecking our dog's health. Okay, and this is true even for many of the premium dog food brands. However, by just adding a few special superfoods to our dog's diets, we can see huge transformations in their health. Catherine Heigl has already done this. She's made a video about it. You guys need to watch this video. It's a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. This worked amazingly for my dog, Dusty. I'm noticing more energy, healthier skin, uh, healthier coat. Dusty's coat looks fantastic. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash disgraceland and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash Disgraceland. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. Stories about Black Sabbath are insane. Their guitarist Tony Iommi lost his fingers and still became one of the most influential guitar players in music history. They quite literally invented a genre of music, heavy metal, and rose to the top of the pop charts without any help from the critics who hated the band. But kids loved them. So too did the Satanists. Despite composing songs that warned against the evils of the occult, the band attracted legions of devil worshippers, occultists, and 1970s freak flag-flying practitioners of the dark arts. They had giant amounts of cocaine shipped into the studio in empty speaker cabinets. Groupies lined up down the block, lit themselves and others on fire, literally. And throughout the 70s, Black Sabbath made great music. Unlike that music I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Oil Can Swank, MK1. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to Mama Told Me Not To Come by Three Dog Night. And why would I play you that specific slice of party foul out cheese, could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on July 16, 1970. And that was the day Black Sabbath was to touch down in San Francisco for the start of their first US tour. It inspired a literal parade of Satanists to take to the streets in their honor, kicking off one of the strangest, heaviest, most evil tales in rock and roll, the wicked story of Black Sabbath. On this, a special Halloween episode, Satanists, severed limbs, dismembered fingers, mountains of cocaine, 
and the invention of heavy metal with Black Sabbath. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Black Sabbath guitarist Tony Iommi wasn't scared. He'd seen worse. But his bandmates, they were a different story. Drummer Bill Ward was chasing his fear down the bottom of a bottle, off drunk somewhere. Close, but no doubt sauced. Singer Ozzy Osbourne was with him, doing the same. Bassist Geezer Butler was near Tony, sitting on a US Army-issued cot, listening intently as the Vietnam vet detailed his recent horrors. Young women, girls, really. Some as young as 10 years old, raped. Stray dogs used for target practice. Grown men lighting themselves on fire in protest of the South Vietnamese government. And a baby used as a bomb. There was no account of how the baby actually died. Its mother hollowed it out, got rid of its internal organs, and somehow managed a way to insert a bomb into the baby's dead body. When U.S. soldiers showed up in her village, she ran out of her hut screaming straight toward the platoon's lieutenant with her baby in her arms. They looked so helpless, the Vietnamese mom and her newborn, so needy. The lieutenant dropped his M16 and opened his arms. He was as shocked as the rest of his men when the mom turned tail and sprinted back toward her hut after handing him her child. It took exactly one second for him to realize something was very wrong, and by then it was too late. He looked down at the baby in his arms, the baby that was clearly dead, and then... He was blown to bits. The story shocked Tony and Geezer. Tony knew Geezer was mentally notating it all, storing it up for lyrics he would one day write. Geezer needed fodder beyond the horror and sci-fi films he devoured for inspiration. The real-life horror detailed from the US soldiers at the American army base they were at in Germany a stopover of sorts, a place to give the vets a minute to collect themselves mentally to cool out before returning to civilian life, was a goldmine of inspiration. Tony Iommi looked around the base. He and his Sabbath bandmates were here to play a gig, to entertain, but it felt like they were the ones being entertained. Maybe entertained was the wrong word. Whatever it was, it felt like they were getting more out of the bargain than the soldiers. It was a lesson. These fucking guys, their lives were permanently altered. For what? So American war profiteer stock could go up a couple percentages of a point? These kids were fucking hopeless when they went into the war and were hopelessly fucked now that they were out of it. Working class, all of them. They reminded Tony of himself and his mates from back in Birmingham, north of London, the Midlands, a tough city, industrial. Most of the men in this room could cut it in Birmingham. After Vietnam, anyway, no problem. Though Tony himself wasn't so sure he could handle Birmingham anymore. Its bleakness was suffocating. Once the hub of the Industrial Revolution, then bombed to oblivion by the Germans during World War II's Blitz, post-war Birmingham was a churning, smoking heap rebuilding itself into a working-class hub, one gray drab factory block at a time. But no amount of time would be fast enough for restless teenagers like Tony Iommi, doomed to live their adolescence under a black cloud. But Tony overcame more than the constant churn of Birmingham's gloom. He overcame tremendous adversity at the age of 17. 
If he was careful and lucky, the sheet metal factory gig he held down as a welder would only be a part-time thing. Playing guitar at that time in 1966 before Black Sabbath and his top 40 band Mythology would hopefully open up roads that led out of Birmingham. And they were headed out the next day on tour, but first, Tony needed to get through his shift at the factory. Tony was working on the line, welding, patiently waiting for his co-worker to send down the next sheet of metal from the giant industrial-sized press. His co-worker was fucked off elsewhere, and Tony was impatient. Get the shift done, get the fuck out of Dodge with his band. Fuck the co-worker. Tony started working the press and the welding. He reached down the line, pulled the press with one hand, pulled the metal out of the mouth of the machine with his other, weld, repeat. He was efficient with his technique, and if he wasn't careful and management got wind of what he was doing, they'd likely fire his coworker and double Tony's workload without any extra pay, no doubt. Tony needed to finish and get out of there. He continued his two-man process on the assembly line. It became automatic, trance-like, an industrial zen. One hand on the press, another hand pulling the metal out. Weld, repeat. One hand on the press, another hand pulling the metal out. Weld, repeat. One hand on the press, another hand pulling the metal out. Weld, repeat. One hand on the press, another hand. Suddenly, the press had gripped Tony's other hand. The pain was sharp and blinding. Instinctively, Tony pulled his hand out of the machine. The machine had his right index and ring fingers firmly in its teeth. But when Tony pulled his hand out, the machine peeled the skin on his two fingers completely off. All that remained were the exposed bones of his fingertips. The pain blinded him, but not before catching a glimpse of his mangled hand. As a guitar player, his fretting hand, he gathered his destroyed and dismembered fingertips, threw them in a bag of ice and headed to the hospital. But there was nothing the doctors could do with them. Tony Iommi was sunk finished before he even got started. He was suicidal. A life of drudgery lay on the horizon. Fingerless guitar players weren't a thing. Except they were. In an effort to get Tony out of his funk, a friend hipped him to guitarist Django Reinhardt, a blazing jazz man who played with only two fingers on his fret hand due to an accident he sustained in a fire. The accident also left him without the use of his right leg. Django didn't let it hold him back, and Tony Iommi, was inspired. He wouldn't let it hold him back either. Django used the only two fingers he had left for his solo work. He used his dead fingers for the chords. Tony Iommi got to work. He fashioned homemade finger caps out of plastic liquid dishwashing bottles. He melted the bottles down using a soldering iron and his welding skills to cram the molten material into the ends of his fingertips. He then used glue leather to further attach his new fingertips. Like Django Reinhardt, Tony's physical limitations now informed his playing. Tony could only use the lightest guitar strings due to the pain that would shoot up his hand and arm every time his fingers touched a string. Tony also had to tune his guitar down, way down, so the strings were looser and easier to manage. And the result was a low, gloomy, new type of heaviness from his guitar that hadn't quite been heard before. Most other Midlands bands on the scene that Tony was then playing in tended to work the traditional blue-eyed soul and R&B side of the street. Bands like the Crawling Kingsnakes featuring John Bonham, who would later go on to drum in Led Zeppelin. The Spencer Davis group, helmed by a young Steve Winwood, who himself would go on to found the band Traffic, and later launch a mega-hit solo career. And Sounds of Blue, featuring a young keyboardist named Christine Perfect, who would later join another blues band named Fleetwood Mac, 
and take the last name of the band's bassist when she married him and become Christine McVie. Those Midlands bands with their blues and their trad tendencies would never welcome Tony Iommi and his new heaviness onto their side of the street. There was something darker in Tony's playing now, something totally unrelated to R&B and pub blues standards, something more akin to the darkness of bluesman Robert Johnson, something much heavier than anything anyone had ever heard before, something now anchored in evil. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about my Tacova's cowboy boots. I picked them up while I was in Austin, Texas. I had this event I had to go to that night. It was a formal thing. I had this idea of what I was going to wear, but I needed the one extra thing. And I was like, aha, Tacovas. There's a Tacovas here in Austin. The dudes who worked at the store were great. I found the exact boot I was looking for. This boot is called the Dylan. I got it in midnight black. I wore them to this formal event. I had on a suit. And then tonight, I'm going to wear them with jeans to my son's baseball game. These things are amazing cowboy boots. They're super comfortable, and I can tell already that they're going to last for a long time. A couple things you can do here to check out Tecovis. If you can, stop by your local Tecovis store. Have a complimentary drink or two. The experience is awesome. You can shop all the new styles. You're going to smell that fresh leather in the store. The friendly staff are going to be at your service. They're going to take care of you. They're going to make you feel like a rock star. A lot of the Tacova stores have these leather custom branding services to make your boots truly personalized. They put on regular live music and events. It's an awesome in-store experience. So if you have the opportunity to check out a Tacova store, I highly recommend it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Dot com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and they ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership in an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. 
Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland, all access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. The first-hand horror stories of Vietnam made it into Black Sabbath's lyrics as Tony Iommi knew they would. The song was an eight-minute explosion entitled War Pigs. It wasn't released until much later, though, in 1970 on Sabbath's second album, Paranoid. But the band wrote it earlier, back around the time they were putting together their first album. But before Tony Iommi could work himself through the explosiveness of War Pigs, he had the devil to contend with. Villagers, scores of them, rampaging through their cobblestone streets, violently laying waste to anything in their path, smashing street lamps with rocks, setting fire to bales of hay with their torches and stampeding over their shocked and protesting fellow countrymen, those who weren't at the performance and who had no idea what was happening. It was the music that set them off, stirred in them something dormant, their anger, their hatred, their will to do whatever it was they felt compelled to do. And at that moment, that feeling led to destruction. The crowd at the concert hall stormed out after the final movement. Roused into trance-like communal action by the performance of Camille Saint-Saëns' Dance Macabre, based on the Henry Casales poem describing a visit from the devil to a graveyard at midnight on Halloween, to summon the dead from their graves and join him in a dance. The piece's macabre subject matter did not stir the crowd into violence. It was the sound of the piece, more specifically, its composition, the scoratura a detuning of the E in the violins to E-flat, a move that created a tritone, the most unsettling sound in all of music, a sound outlawed by the church in the Middle Ages for this exact reason, because it inspired violence, evil. The most unholy of sounds was attained by flattening the fifth note in the chord progression. Typically, the fifth note is deployed for tension. Flattening the fifth increased the tension and added an element of gloom, of unease, that when people heard it for the first time, they could not process it. It was so foreign to anything they'd heard prior in popular music that it drove them to violence. After one too many performances featuring the tritone resulted in violence, the tritone, in addition to being outlawed, became known as Diabolos in Musica, the devil in music, or the devil's interval. Back in 1968, Tony Iommi didn't know any of this. All he knew was his band was in need of songs if they were going to make a record and make it out of Birmingham. His lyricist slash bassist, Geezer Butler, sat on his sofa, very stoned. From the stereo, the classical orchestral suite, Planets by Gustav Holst, blared. The first movement's title, Mars, the Bringer of War, caught Geezer's attention. The heaviness of it reminded him of the heaviness of Vietnam. And Geezer sat listening, cradling his bass and casually played along to the piece. Tony picked up on Geezer's playing, and rather than anchor the melody with root notes like most bass players would, Geezer shadowed the melody with his playing and filled notes into the spaces. It was more jazz than blues and far from standard rock. Tony picked up his guitar and began playing along as well. But when the movement ended, Tony kept playing, but he dropped the key down from A flat to G to make it sound darker. It was heavier than anything the two had messed with before with their bandmates Ozzy and Bill. Up to this point, they were just another blues band from the Midlands. They played under the name Pocatuck Blues Band and then under the name Earth. Both names were indistinguishable from the blue-eyed hippie drivel of the day and suited the nowhere rock pub music that they were making. Total blah. But this new riff was something else. It had promise. 
That night, Geezer sat alone in his bedroom with the riff echoing in his head. He read his Alistair Crowley. Geezer, like most of London's hip underground, was obsessed with the early 20th century occultist. Geezer was also obsessed with religion, the pageantry of it all. As a kid, he wanted to be a priest. His bedroom walls were covered with crucifixes and iconic imagery in stark contrast with the esoteric individualist ideas from Crowley's Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn he was filling his head with at the moment. Magic with a K, dark magic, power, sexual power, ritualistic sex, self-gratification at any expense. All of it was the forbidden fruit that flew in the face of Geezer's Catholic upbringing. It fascinated him, the darkness, the evil. Geezer took it a step further and mixed among the religious imagery on his walls satanic images, inverted crosses, drawings of Satan himself, and a picture of Crowley. He even painted his walls black. His bedroom was a diorama of good and evil. In it, he faded off into sleep, Crowley's magic in theory and practice resting on his chest. He awoke in a fit, eyes wide, blackness all around, that riff from earlier with Tony ringing in his head. And then the sound of Gustav Holt's planets in a distant chorus, an eerie whispered incantation. Geezer's spine straightened, the hairs on his arm rose up, a breeze bristled over his chilled skin. And when Geezer noticed his windows and doors were shut, making any breeze impossible, his heart quickened, his eyes began to adjust, the darkness started to fade, he could make out the images on the wall. Pagan priests wearing goat's heads, sacrificing virgins, ancient gods of the underworld devouring their children, and the picture of Aleister Crowley staring down at him with his stony face and deep, bottomless black eyes. Geezer broke from Crowley's stare and looked to the side of his bed. There, a figure in black. Geezer's heart forced itself up into his throat. He leapt from the bed, flipped on his light, and the figure was gone. Geezer immediately began tearing down all the satanic imagery on his walls. When he was done, he put pen to paper and in a stream of consciousness, depicted what he saw and what he felt. The next day, he brought his words to Tony and the rest of his bandmates. Ozzy helped shape them into a melody, and the words were a warning against the very real power of Satan, a warning against the occult, a call to arms against evil. Tony called upon the riff they'd written the day before, the low G to the G octave to the flatted fifth, the D flat, the tritone, the devil's interval. They called the song Black Sabbath. Geezer nicked the title from the Boris Karloff horror movie, and they liked the song title so much they decided to give their band the same name. And this new approach, this darkness, Diabolos and Musica, the devil's music, even if it was a warning against evil and not a celebration of evil, the horror of it all, of the dream, of the riff, of the tritone, of the imagery and the lyrics, of the sound of Tony's playing, the heaviness of it all was completely unique. It perfectly suited them. Black Sabbath was born. From the day they unlocked that heavy diabolical power, they began their climb through the seven circles of British podunk hell to international rock star success. Within months of the name change and the discovery of their new sound, they had signed with UK's Philips Records. Their self-titled first release in 1970 disgusted and appalled the critics, but it tapped into something elemental in the record-buying public. Kids went wild over Black Sabbath's newfound heaviness and evil image, and with no help from the critics, Sabbath's debut album went to number eight on the UK charts. Warner Brothers released the album in North America, 
But when the PR department pointed out that launching a Black Sabbath tour at the same time as the trial of Charles Manson and his so-called family was just getting started, a trial to determine if Manson was guilty of masterminding the horrific Tate LaBianca murders, murders where the word war was carved into a victim's chest and pig was painted in blood on a victim's wall, words that Sabbath seemed to crib straight from Charlie and his girls, words far more violent and esoteric than anything in the Beatles' Helter Skelter, when the timing of both Black Sabbath's tour and Charles Manson's trial was discovered to coincide due to fear of bad press, Warner Brothers abruptly canceled Sabbath's U.S. tour. But Anton LaVey didn't get the message. LaVey cut an intimidating figure, bulky and bald with a devil's goatee, posing with snakes and walking a pet leopard around the streets of San Francisco, and in all respects taking up Aleister Crowley's mantle of the occult in the new century. LaVey had written the Satanic Bible and was the high priest and founder of the Church of Satan. From this position, he presided over satanic marriages, baptisms, and funerals, and in coordination with Warner Brothers Records, planned a Black Sabbath parade to kick off Black Sabbath's U.S. tour. In San Francisco, where Black Sabbath were supposed to make their U.S. debut at the famed Fillmore West, the satanic parade went ahead as planned, without the band. American practitioners in the dark arts had found their new heroes in Black Sabbath. To them, the band's music was evil incarnate. They were a band that championed their cause, evil. LaVey and the Satanists had taken Crowley's model of do what thou wilt to the extreme. And just like everything else in American culture at the end of the 60s, they were violently clawing for whatever would bring them personal satisfaction. They were the me decade, slouching towards Bethlehem, waiting to be born with or without Tony Iommi and his bandmates, Anton LaVey and his Satanists, and whatever other freaky San Franciscan riffraff LaVey could muster, all came out to parade through the streets in honor of Satan and in the name of Black Sabbath. The parade kicked off on Folsom Street. Anton LaVey was at the head as master of ceremonies, dressed top to toe in a black robe, the Black Pope as he proclaimed himself to be. A big upside-down cross hung from his neck, he even had a scepter. He towered over his assembled freaks, fellow Satanists, elaborately dressed drag queens, a group of juggling little people, fancy boys in hot pants sashaying alongside the paraders, a Mexican mariachi band marching in step with the large-scale floats assembled for the occasion. A group of Black Panthers made the scene, clearly confused by the parade's name. A flatbed truck with a hee-haw-style camp bluegrass band brought up the rear, picking out Black Sabbath songs on banjos, fiddles, and acoustic guitars. A local TV crew made the scene, and the extremely weird event made the wires. Tony Iommi read about it in his morning paper and nearly dropped his cup of tea in shock. Satanists? What, he thought, hath Black Sabbath wrought? A group of Satanists and freaks marching in the name of his band was shocking, yes, but not nearly as shocking as the murder he would learn about in the coming months. A murder inspired by a familiar figure in black. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. American newspapers were a trip. 1971, a new decade, a dark dawn. The stories screamed off the page. In Los Angeles, the Manson trial was high drama. Headlines informed Tony that recently, Manson family members tried robbing an army surplus store to free Charlie. In San Francisco, two members of the Black Liberation Army, a violent offshoot of the Black Panthers, 
raided a police station and fired off a round into the gut of a police sergeant. He died. In New York, the press was obsessed with an Italian gangster named Joey Gallo. So much for that other New York Joe, Joe DiMaggio. And by the 70s, America was turning its lonely eyes to the dark side. Tony looked around the hotel lobby he was sitting in and saw it all. The rock scene was just an exaggerated microcosm of the American zeitgeist. It seemed that in America, it wasn't enough just to get on with life. You needed a shtick, some sort of thing that you identified with and that identified you as being unique among your neighbors, friends, coworkers, groupies, etc. Because everyone's just so fucking special, aren't they? There were the leftover hippies, the speed freaks, the groupies, the nihilists, your Travis Bickle prototypes, political anarchists, yippies, zippies, black panthers, white panthers, Vietnam vets, heroin addicts, hell's angels, soul brothers, soul sisters, Harry Krishnas, witches, and of course, a growing number of Satanists. They were all there milling about the lobby in most of the major American cities the Black Sabbath visited, looking to score, looking for the party, looking for that eternal buzz, looking to meet a rock star, fuck a rock star, possess a rock star. Tony sat quietly in the corner, dark glasses on. His features, even the silhouette of his high cheekbones were mostly hidden. His hat perched low, head to toe in black. He was remarkably inconspicuous amongst the hubbub happening around him. It was check-in time. Crew and members of his band and other bands on the bill that evening, the Jay Giles Band and Humble Pie, were filing in. Musicians were swarmed for autographs. Desk clerks and bellboys were overmatched. Tony crossed his legs and buried his head back into his daily paper. And what he read gripped him with fear. She was only 16 years old, from New Jersey. She was a good Catholic girl, didn't mess with the drugs or even with the boys. By all accounts, she was a beauty. She'd gone missing. For three months, her family sweated it out, hoping for the best, fearing the worst. And then, one morning, it happened. Her father went out to retrieve the morning paper, as was his pre-work routine. Often he was aided in this task by the family dog, but not this morning. The dog, he'd presumed, was off somewhere else. He opened his front door and looked to the bottom of the cement stoop. Ah, there was the dog, sitting obediently, looking up at him with those big, innocent, doughy eyes. But between his teeth, where he'd usually hold his master's newspaper, was something else. Something similar in size, but something different, something ragged, something bloody, bruised, broken, something his master couldn't bear to comprehend, something beyond explanation. The arm of his master's missing daughter. Tony's eyes frantically scanned the rest of the text below the headline, Girl Sacrificed in Witch Rite. Turns out they found the rest of the girl in an area off a Wachton Reservoir known as the Devil's Teeth quote-unquote occult symbols were found around the girl's body. Locals suspected a known coven of witches. Yes, witches, in 1971, were blamed for a crime scene that had all the markings of a satanic sacrifice. The victim's body was outlined by sticks within the shape of a coffin. There were inverted crosses made of forest wood placed about her body, and her body was elevated on a mound of dirt, a makeshift altar. Tony looked up from his paper, shocked. He glanced across the lobby. Everyone seemed to be moving fast, this way and that, looking for action. Most were wearing some pre-approved subculture fashion, bell-bottoms, fringes, leather headbands, beads. And the Hare Krishnas danced about with shaved heads and colorful robes. The groupies shifted awkwardly in revealing outfits. A pimp eyed the groupies with thoughts of recruitment, 
His Technicolor suit, hat, and cane made it clear who and what he was. White Panthers and Red Berets handed out pamphlets. Blue denim-clad roadies muscled their way through to the elevators. They were hard to distinguish from the Hell's Angels who were there to do whatever the hell they wanted. And far away, in the opposite corner of the lobby, to the right of the entry, almost as inconspicuous as Tony, three figures clad like him head to toe in black, but in black robes, each wearing the same necklace, a modest silver chain with an inverted cross. Satanists. Nervously, Tony looked down at his paper once again. Under the headline, Girls Sacrificed in Witch Rite, he stared at the image of the victim. Smudged black ink obscured her face. All that was prevalent was the cut of her high cheekbones and next to her image, a composite sketch of who investigators believed to be the suspect. An androgynous looking late teen or young 20-something. Long hair like the victim's, big eyes. Other than that, fairly unremarkable. Tony looked up once again and across the lobby and the Satanists were gone. A twin bump of fear and relief speedballed through the young guitarist's veins. On stage that night, the witches were in the audience, right up there front and center in the third row, just staring at him, not moving, not enjoying the show in any way, just staring, there, plain as day in one moment and in the next when Tony looked up and out into the audience, gone. Later on tour in other cities, more Satanists made their presence known as well as their love of Black Sabbath. They fought their way backstage to gawk at the band. Tony, along with Geezer and Bill, saw them outside of their tour bus at the airport, and soon anyone clad in black was a potential Satanist to the band. Throughout 1971 and 1972, as Black Sabbath climbed the charts in both the UK and the States, the lore of the band and their dark imagery compelled the freaks to flood out of the woodwork into the band's shows. Again, most mysterious were the Crowley adherents, LaVey's Satanists. The band received fan mail written in blood. One fan in LA cornered Ozzy backstage and told him he had a plan for him to go to Mexico, to buy a corpse, to smuggle it back into the States and on stage so that Ozzy could bring it out during his set and stab it during the show. At the Hollywood Bowl, Tony walked off stage after his set. He happened to look behind him for whatever reason, and there was a man, a big man, in all black, coming at him fast with a dagger raised above his head. Security immediately saw what was about to happen and pounced on the dude. Tony was safely whisked backstage. At a gig in Memphis, Black Sabbath arrived to find their dressing room door dripping with blood in the form of a giant cross. The door was also nailed shut. At another gig in the Midwest, the band arrived back at their hotel, took the elevator to their floor of suites and found as many as 20 Satanists, all clad in black, sitting in the dark of the hallway, illuminated only by the black candles they'd set up around them on the floor as they chanted softly. Freaky. All the while, Tony tracked the case of the slain Catholic girl from New Jersey. In whatever city he was in, Tony scoured national newspapers for items on the case. His curiosity compelled him. Who could do this and why and how? Tony feared the worst. Was it a Black Sabbath fan? And just who was this girl? There were no pictures of her in any of the recent articles he'd seen. And in the first article he'd read, her image was smudged, obscured. There was still little info on the suspect. Supposedly, they still didn't know if the killer was male or female. Just that he or she was in their early 20s, had long hair, and was suspected to be some sort of witch, an occultist, or simply a Satanist. Of course, there are distinctions among all of those things, but the press didn't care to make mention of that. Tony Iommi didn't care either. This wasn't what he signed up for. 
witches, ritualistic murder, giant bloody crosses, smuggled corpses, America coming undone before him. He was a rock guitarist, a man of the trades, not of the dark arts. His band, Black Sabbath, had invented a new form of rock and roll. Out of thin air, the tritone and Birmingham steel, they created heavy metal. A pummeling mix of detuned riffs, jazz-shadowed bass, industrial rhythms, and anthemic melody. Kids went mad for it, critics hated it, and the Satanists found their battle cry in the heavy gloom that Sabbath had awakened. The thought of it was too much. Tony needed an escape. Grass helped before, but the sweet leaf no longer provided the relief that he needed. Tony, like the rest of his band, retreated into heavy cocaine use. Black Sabbath did so much cocaine that a full-time dealer accompanied them on tour. And while recording their album Volume 4 in Los Angeles, Columbia's finest cocaine was shipped to the Bel Air home the band was renting in crates the size of studio cabinet speakers. Coke was everywhere around Black Sabbath in the 1970s, just as it had been around Geezer Butler's one-time obsession, Aleister Crowley, almost a century earlier. Crowley could handle his coke, so too could Tony Iommi. His bandmates, unfortunately, could not. Increasingly, like the Satanists who now followed them on tour, the behavior of Black Sabbath's other members grew more intense. Bill Ward would pass out. So drunk and so stoned so often that his bandmates regularly set his beard on fire to wake him up. Geezer Butler once flushed 10 grand worth of coke down their rented Bel Air home's toilet in a delirious rush, not realizing the cops at the door were only responding to Ozzy drunkenly sitting on the house alarm and setting it off. When the cops split, Geezer and Ozzy frantically tried to plunge the blow back out of the toilet. As for Ozzy Osbourne himself, even in his early days, he refused to be outdone by his bandmates or any other rock star. At Seattle's famous Edgewater Inn, where the infamous Led Zeppelin shark incident allegedly took place, Ozzy rented his own room and his own fishing rod and caught his own shark from the ocean outside his window just as John Bonham supposedly had. But then Ozzy took it one step further. He gutted the fish in the hotel bathroom and used its bloody innards to repaint the hotel room's floors and walls. This was standard fare, everyday behavior for Tony Iommi's bandmates, especially for Ozzy. Ozzy Osbourne's behavior was now a constant issue as far as his band leader, Tony Iommi, was concerned. Tony was fighting for his creative life, trying to save Black Sabbath from the Satanists and the critics who were savaging the band on a regular basis. None other than the hippest of hip rock critics, Lester Bangs, said of the band in Rolling Stone's only Black Sabbath album review to that point, quote, Despite the murky song titles and some inane lyrics that sound like Vanilla Fudge playing doggerel tribute to Aleister Crowley, the album has nothing to do with spiritualism, the occult, or anything much. Just like Cream, but worse. But when it came to the kids who actually bought records, Lester's review didn't matter, nor did the mountain of other bad press. By 1973, Black Sabbath was as popular as any band in America with the exception of Led Zeppelin. Tony knew that their latest albums, Master of Reality and Volume 4, had a lot to do with it. Maybe Tony was lying to himself, but he credited the depth of songs like After Forever and Supernaut for the band's success. Creatively, they were massive steps forward from the earlier meat and potatoes riffage of songs like Iron Man and Electric Funeral. In the lyrics Geezer kicked up for After Forever were particularly poignant from Tony's perspective. After Forever was a warning. A warning to stay the fuck away from Satan. Just like their song Black Sabbath from their first album had warned of a figure in black. After Forever warned of the consequences of the dark arts. 
and try to put distance between Black Sabbath and the Satanists. But it didn't matter. The incendiary lyrics of After Forever and the steamrolling heavy hookiness of their latest album's other standout tracks, Sweet Leaf, Children of the Grave, Into the Void, Snowblind, and Changes, all rang out like a demonic siren call to low-rent American occultists in need of validation. The Satanists, it seemed, were not warned off by After Forever. They did not get the message. And there was another person who apparently didn't get the message either. Tony Iommi's singer, Ozzy Osbourne. By the end of 1978, somehow, someone thought it was a good idea for Black Sabbath to go back to Los Angeles. Some sort of change was needed, and this was it. Their 1976 record, Technical Ecstasy, was a disaster. A creative overreach by Tony, a neglectful mess by Geezer, Bill, and Ozzy. And the album even bored the Satanists who had all but abandoned the band by now in favor of other heavy acts who followed in Sabbath's gargantuan footsteps. And for a time afterward, Ozzy had even left the band and was replaced by Dave Walker from the band Savoy Brown. But now, for their 1978 album, another commercial whiff called Never Say Die, Ozzy had come back. But Ozzy's behavior was too much even by Black Sabbath standards. Back during their first stint in Los Angeles, Ozzy's behavior could be tolerated, but it was different now. Tony had to create music that would compete with the likes of Led Zeppelin, The Who, and now upstart bands that were wildly energetic like ACDC and wildly talented like Van Halen. By rock star standards, Zeppelin's frontman Robert Plant was practically an intellectual. And the Who's singer Roger Daltrey commanded respect, Singer Bon Scott from ACDC was plugged into a different circuit board altogether, and Van Halen's frontman, David Lee Roth, was nothing short of a dynamo with his acrobatic stage presence and washboard abs. Ozzy Osbourne was a buffoon. With those doughy eyes, those silly bangs that cropped his long hair, and that perpetual look of stupidity on his mug that always seemed to say, I didn't mean to do it, I swear. Ozzy passed out and pissed himself regularly. Ozzy got drunk and into a fistfight with Geezer. Ozzy got high on coke and crashed his motorcycle. Ozzy got pissed and tried shitting on a motorist in the middle of the street out of road rage. By Tony Iommi's estimation, Ozzy Osbourne's buffoonery was so intense that he wondered if Ozzy was trying to sabotage the band. Either way, it didn't matter. Ozzy had to go. And so, Tony Iommi unceremoniously kicked his front man out of his band. The maid was summoned to pack his bags. Someone called the car service for him. Ozzy was given 96 grand severance and a low-rent apartment in Hollywood to stay in to nurse his wounds with copious amounts of cocaine, alcohol, groupies, and Domino's pizza. He was out, gone. Tony sunk himself further into his work, trying to put together songs for a new Sabbath album with a new singer without Ozzy. And he also sunk further into his use of cocaine. In Hollywood, Tony Iommi connected with the dentist of the recently deceased Elvis Presley, and by all accounts, his legal drug dealer, Dr. Max Shapiro, who now kept Tony supplied with regular scripts of pharmaceutical cocaine. But Ozzy Osbourne, as far as Tony Iommi was concerned, was a ghost. Just like those long-gone figures in black, the ones in the hotel lobby, in the crowd, at the foot of Geezer's bed in the middle of the night. There, then gone. Tony had no regrets. 
a new singer, short in stature but big in voice and determination. Ronnie James Dio of the band Rainbow was brought into Sabbath's ranks to lead the charge for the kids against the critics and further away from the Satanists. And Ronnie James Dio would do exactly that with the first Black Sabbath album released without Ozzy Osbourne. And with Dio at the helm co-writing material with the newly inspired Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler, and Bill Ward, the album Heaven and Hell was nothing short of a heavy metal masterpiece. More powerful than anything Sabbath had done in years, and as commercially successful as anything the band had done since the earlier part of the decade. Black Sabbath was back. Because like the devil himself, Ozzy Osbourne was cast out. Years later, Tony took his tea out by the pool on one of those indistinguishable Hollywood afternoons. Perfect temperature, loads of sun. He strained his eyes to read his paper. There, in the national section, a follow-up on the near-cold case involving the Catholic girl sacrificed in the ritualistic occult murder in the Devil's Teeth area of New Jersey. There was still no arrest, but there was a better composite sketch of the suspect, better than the one Tony had seen in the paper a few years earlier. The suspect was now believed to definitely be a man. By the sketch, though, it was still a bit hard to tell. He didn't look like much of a killer. He had long hair with cropped bangs like a girl, and for a supposed Satanist, innocent-looking round eyes. And that look on his face, it was somehow familiar to Tony. It seemed to say, I didn't mean to do it, I swear. Such a disgrace. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is a special Halloween episode of Disgraceland. Thanks for checking out this episode of Disgraceland. This being a Halloween episode, we indulged in more poetic license than normal. So no, Ozzy Osbourne wasn't a Satanist, and no, he wasn't responsible for the murder at Devil's Teeth. But that true crime is indeed true, even the bit about the dog in the victim's arm. Google Devil's Teeth murder to learn more about it. Freaky stuff. Also, before you fire off your hate mail, I love Ozzy Osbourne. I love Sabbath-era Ozzy Osbourne. I love solo-era Ozzy Osbourne. Pretty much all of it, even the recent stuff. We released an entire episode on Ozzy that covers the hijinks of his solo years, as well as his brief stint in jail and dives deeper into the Snowblind Bel Air era of Black Sabbath as well. So check that Ozzy episode out in the Disgraceland archive and happy Halloween, you sick bastards. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod and on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rockarola. He's a bad, bad man.